Lord God, indeed, we have victory in you because of what your Son has done. Lord, we're thankful for the love that you shared and demonstrating how you demonstrate your love towards us by dying on the cross for us. We're thankful for the assurance that we have, that we have this future hope in you, Lord. I pray, Lord, that we will be moved by it, that we're controlled by this reality, that one day we will be with you because of what you've done on the cross for us. Help us behold the glories of the cross more and more each and every single day, and may our desire for you continue to grow as we learn more about your Son. Thank you for this time that we have in your Son's name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, before I begin my sermon, I do want to make some introductory remarks. First and foremost, I'm thankful to Pastor Henry and the elders for allowing me this opportunity to occupy this pulpit for the next several weeks and months. Um, it is indeed a privilege. Some of you know that I've been doing my doctoral, I've been, I'm getting my doctoral ministry for the last two and a half years so far. And uh, this is really just the the fruit of all of that, all of the studies and all of the things that we've learned about the text or about preaching. Uh, this is, I guess, our way of letting you know, just to see my progress as a pastor and preacher here at SFBC. I also want thank, to thank all of you that participated in, fulfill, in filling out that survey form. Uh, I, I don't know who wrote what, uh, and it's good. And I hope that you know, the, these questions, although it may be convicting and probing to some of you, it does allow me to uh, know how I can be a better preacher, a better shepherd for this flock. So, again, before we start, uh, there's a question and why I chose this topic. Because the topic that we're going to go over the next 10 weeks or so is why does SF need SFBC? That's really my topic. Like, why does why do I think that this city needs this church? This isn't to say that this is the only church that preaches the gospel, but I do know that this is a church that's unique and special because of the way that we hold to God's word. There's a definitely, definitely an elevation of God's word here. We have a high view of scripture here, and yet God has used us in places here providentially for his divine purposes. I know in the last several years, there's been people that have left this church, and there's a lot more people that have come to this church. And whether people go or come, that is definitely by, uh, for Christian liberty, they could decide what's best for them. But I really want to encourage the people that are here, because when you look around, especially in the city, it just seems like things are going from bad to worse. And my hope as a shepherd is to encourage you to continue to press on, to understand God's will in your life to faithfully represent him here. God has moved people from place to place with the hope that we will faithfully represent him. And that's what I hope for, for you, uh, SFBC, that you will represent Christ well. Because as bad as this city may seem, and yes, it is bad, it is still not, it's still not a place that is unredeemable. By God's grace, he will use us in different ways in the city to bring others to saving faith. And that's what I hope. I hope is that we take advantage of the opportunity that we have here in the city to represent him, to help be used by God to win those that are lost to him. And that's my hope for us, that we all continue to be moved by the Lord to continue to live faithful lives for him. So that's it. Let me pray again before we get into the sermon. Lord God, what we do not know, help us understand. What we do not have, 
may you give those things to, the, to us. And what we are not in Christ, may you make us. Thank you for this time and your word, in your son's name. Amen. We all understand what it means to be a stranger at some point in our lives. Whether it's going, getting a new job, you walk in that first day, you don't know where things are, and people generally are pretty nice to you. It feels strange, but over time, eventually, you get used to it. I know some of uh, the parents here, their kids uh, had their first week of school. I'm sure the kids feel strange. They're away from home. Uh, they're in a new environment. They have new friends. They have new teachers. Some of you college students are in the same way. You go to a new class, new setup, and all these things are new. But over time, eventually, you get used to it. But as Christians, the moment we become a believer, it takes time for us to grow. And the longer we grow in the faith, the more stranger we become. It's almost the opposite effect. We become less and less settled in the place that we are at because we look more like Christ and the world has a natural animosity towards Jesus Christ. The more we grow in our faith, the more we love Jesus Christ, the more we look like Jesus, the stranger we look to the world. And oftentimes, as we see, have seen through church history and even in modern day, we see that the more people are like Christ, the more the people invite opposition to them. And it is in those difficult times that Christians need to dig deep into the Word of God to remember what we have in Jesus Christ. The Christian life, at the time of this writing in 1 Peter, lived a very difficult life. The world at the time were questioning them because of the faith that they have in Jesus Christ. The Christians needed help in order to endure all of the persecution, all of the suffering from the world. And this letter is to remind them, and even remind us, of the hope that we have in the midst of all kinds of suffering. Peter is the author of this letter, and we know who Peter is. Peter is one of the, was known in different circles as the man with the foot-shaped mouth. He would often speak at the right times, and he also speak at the wrong times. There, uh, there are times when he would say things that are very profound and centered around truth, and then almost immediately there will be moments where he'll say things that are of the devil. Peter saw Jesus do all of these different miracles. He saw Jesus walk on water. He saw Jesus um, transfigured before his eyes. He's the one who denied Jesus. He's the one who saw Jesus beat. He saw Jesus in, on the cross. He also saw Jesus raised from the dead. And he was also the one that was commissioned by Jesus to feed the flock. And we are here, too, in a very strange land, a land that, where we don't belong because of the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. And we need to be reminded of the charge that Jesus has for us. For this sermon, we will focus on God's charge for the sojourner, for the stranger, for the alien. If we want to endure all of the hostility that is to come, we need to represent God well in light of those situations. We need to remember the charge that God has given us. If you want to be a faithful sojourner, here's the first thing you need to know. You need to know your calling. Our first point this morning is that the, the sojourner's calling. Notice in verse 1, it's a Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens or as strangers scattered throughout Pontus, 
Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Peter begins this letter as he does in most letters, and even the New Testament, a lot of the people put their name in the beginning. We usually put it at the very end. But this is good, because then we know exactly who wrote this. You don't want to read a letter and the end realize, like, oh, that's not the right person that I'm thinking about. Peter is the author of this book. He is known as the Apostle of Jesus Christ, and that is just a basically another way of saying he was sent by Christ. He had this unique opportunity to represent Jesus Christ. In a lot of ways, you can say that this is the greatest earthly position you can ever have, to be able to be taught by Jesus to represent him. Peter was unique because he was with Christ, he journeyed with him, and he was part of God's divine plan to build the church. Jesus Christ himself told Jesus, told Peter that on this rock he will build his church, and not even the gates of Hades can overcome the church. Jesus, Peter was an eyewitness of Jesus' authority, and the scripture tells us that, uh, that in Ephesians that the church will be built on the foundation of the apostle, while Christ is the cornerstone. Jesus had this unique task for Peter. He invested in Peter for this particular purpose, and that is to be an instrument of the Lord to build the church. Now when Peter's writing in 1 Peter, 30 years after Jesus has ascended, 30 years have passed, and he has faithfully fulfilled this task. He was at one point just a fisherman, but now he is a fisher of man. Notice that all of these places that Peter is talking about, all the, all the believers are scattered throughout all of these locations. These, this is modern-day uh, Turkey or Asia Minor. This is bordering the Black Sea. And it's interesting because most of the people that he's ministering to are pro, is most likely a Gentile crowd. Look down in chapter 1, verse 14. It says that, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Going down chapter 2, verse 9, it said, But you are a, priest, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a, na- a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Chapter 4, verse uh, 3 and 4. For the time has already passed insufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abomination and abominable idolatries. And all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same ex- excessive. Uh, of disposition, and they malign you. It seems that there is a growth in the life of Peter. He used to struggle with ministering to those that are not Jewish. He struggled with those that are not of his ethnic background. In fact, in the book of Acts, we remember that God gave Peter a vision of all the foods that he can eat, and Peter's natural response was, Lord, I have never touched an unclean thing in my life. And he had to have these visions multiple times for him to see that God has placed him uniquely there to minister to Gentiles. In fact, there were even times where it seemed that he struggled a bit. 
Because in the book of Galatians, he had, he, he had this momentary backslide where he sided with the Judaizers, and the apostle Paul had to confront him to his face. At this point, First Peter, I think he's matured out of, out of all of that, because he's ministering to all of these people throughout Asia Minor. And this is something that was special about the church. We understand that no matter what background we're from, and I'm not just speaking about here in SFBC, but just the church in general, any church that holds to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we come from multiple different backgrounds. We can be in different sociological backgrounds, different ethnicities, but yet we are still together as one body of Christ. And the thing that unites us, the thing that ties our love together is Jesus Christ. And as the world gets worse and worse, and they don't understand and become more polarizing, the church shines as a beacon because of the unity that we have. Not in the things of this world, but because of the things of of heaven. Paul talks about how all the things that he has, whether his background, his work, all his ethnicity, all of those things are considered waste. Those things are considered rubbish compared to the surpassing value of Jesus Christ. And every Christian here understands that. As a sojourner here on this earth, we live differently because of the love that we share with Christ and with one another. Notice that Peter writes to those who resides as aliens. God is the one who scattered the people. We know that God has sovereignly moved people. He'll use certain worldly events sometimes to move people. Other, people, other times we just move them because people have certain desires to go to one place or another. And this idea of a sojourner or alien is not foreign to the audience, especially if they understand the Old Testament. All the way back in the Old Testament, Abraham was called out by God to represent him. He's going to build a nation through Abraham. And he was called a sojourner and and, and foreigner. He was going to use Abraham to build the nation of Israel. And we see when the nation, when the, when the, when when Abraham and through his descendants became a multitude when they were in Egypt, God has called them out again and called them out of Egypt so that he could make a nation out of them. And they were also described as sojourners, as aliens, as strangers. God will sovereignly and providentially move people for his divine purposes. And we know that's what some of you guys are as well. The Lord has brought you here to San Francisco Bible Church or to San Francisco or the Bay Area some of you, you are here because of school. Others of you are here because of work. Some of you are here because of family. But no matter where you are and why you have come here to this city, it is because God has providentially moved you here. And if we understand that, we must take advantage of it. We should understand that we are here as strangers, as, strangers, as representatives of Jesus Christ our Lord. If we live for him, then this world will seem very strange to us, and they will naturally not trust us. And all of us are here to represent him. That means that our value system is different from the world. Our worldview is different from the world. Our lifestyle is different from the world. And there is, in a sense, yes, it's true that even aliens, when they come, I'm not talking about space, I'm talking about just people in general, strangers, foreigners, they eventually will have to adapt to those around them. They have to learn the language Yes, that's true. They may have to adjust to certain clothing. That might be true as well. But generally speaking, someone that is a foreigner or an alien, they don't fully belong there because they know that they do not belong here. They cannot assimilate perfectly because they're not of this world. Peter is not advocating that we leave this planet, but rather we represent Christ 
well while we are still here. So it is a question that you need to ask yourself. Do you live like a stranger? Do you live like a foreigner? Do you live like an alien? Is your life different? I'm not saying comparing yourself to other Christians. I'm just saying compared to your non-believing friends and co-workers and classmates. Can they look at you and can identify that there is something strange about you? The way that you live your life, the way that you talk, the way that you communicate, the way that you, the things that you love, the things that you value, does it make you different? Because if you live like them, then you cannot represent God well. This is how we're supposed to be as Christians. We don't belong here. We're just passing through. This is just our temporal existence here. And the evidence that you truly believe that there is a God, particularly in in Jesus Christ, is the way that you live out your life. There used to be a saying, I don't know if it's used anymore, but there used to be a saying that you are so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good. You're You're not of earthly use. First of all, I have, a, I have two comments against that because, first of all, that's not true. If you are heavenly minded, you are going to be useful here on the earth. And that's what Ephesians 2 talks about, how, yes, we're saved by grace, but the result of that is that we do good works and that everything we do, we do with excellence because we know who we truly live for. We worship the Lord. He is our master. We serve him. And all that we do, we do with our best efforts and we leave a gospel impact here on this earth, whatever area of life you're in. Secondly, I think that this, this phrase, Christians are so heavily minded they are of no earthly good, I don't think that describes our culture. In fact, I think our Christian culture is the other way. We're so earthly minded that we are of no heavenly use. We love this world so much that the Lord will not use us for his purposes because we are like the world. We think like the world. We have the same excitements of the things of the world. And it's oftentimes because of that mindset that the Lord doesn't use us for his purposes. And we need to think and live differently because we belong to him. Notice at the end of verse 1 it said that who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. We were chosen for a particular task. We're chosen by the Lord to be here to represent him. This word chosen, think of it as it's like a chef that has a garden in the back. The word chosen here is the idea of choosing a particular fruit or vegetable and use it for, for a good cause or purpose. It's choosing the best. He sees us, and by God's grace, he sees something in us that he will use for his divine purposes. We must see this as being chosen by God with tremendous, we must feel this tremendous honor because of it. God gave us new life, and we must live for him, We must maximize his name and glory here on earth. Now, this adds weight to the idea of being an alien in this world because we don't represent this kingdom. We live in this kingdom, but we represent Christ and his kingdom in heaven. Why does Peter begin this way? I think Peter begins this way because people are just struggling. They are from different backgrounds. They, some of them might be tempted to go back to live like the world again. And Peter's saying there is something even greater than the, your citizenship here on earth. is that you, are, you belong to him. You have a citizenship in heaven. We're chosen by him. We are part of God's family. And there is nothing about us that is worth saving, but yet God still chose us. Notice that he says, 
is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. This is God's foreknowledge, meaning that he has thought about this. He, he saw us before, he, he chose us before the foundation of the world. This term foreknowledge isn't speaking of just like information and data. It's not that he looks at us and knows exactly what we are, how tall we are, how many hair on head. That's not the most important thing. Yes, he knows those things. But this word foreknowledge has this idea of, of, like, of a relationship. He has a relationship with us. Before we even are aware of our existence, before the foundation of the world, God chose us to be part of his family. You'll notice that the entire trinity is involved here. God the Father chose us, and said by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that means the Holy Spirit enables us, he dwells in us so that we can understand our sin and our need of a Savior. This is the doctrine of regeneration here. He chose us so that we can be like Jesus Christ. The Lord doesn't change us, and, and the Holy Spirit doesn't work in our lives so that we could be nothing. There is a goal for, for us, and that is to obey Jesus Christ. Notice it says that to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. Because of the washing of, of, our, of our sins by the blood of Christ, we can now represent him well. And it says here that may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. That's Peter's hope, is that when you understand your calling, when you understand that you were chosen by God for this particular purpose, that you will live faithfully for him. That yes, you will look like an alien in this world, but you are, it's because you are a citizen of heaven. Now, as believers, when we understand our calling, how do we keep our calling? How do we know, how do we keep, continue to remember this calling? Well, at least our second point, we need to know the sojourner's hope. The sojourner's calling is by God, is part of his foreknowledge that the Holy Spirit worked in our life so that we could be like Jesus Christ. But in order to keep that in our life, we need to remember the hope that we have, which is our second point, the sojourner's hope beginning verse 3. Peter continues on by reminding us the fact that we have this new covenant, this new relationship with him. Peter wants to encourage the believers that all of us belong to him and that this life is not worth it compared to life that is to come. It should motivate us in this life. The future hope that we have allows us to be faithful in every moment that we are here on earth. Verse 3 said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You might know this, but the word blessed here means to eulogize. It means to speak well of, to boast about. And this is a command for us as Christians, that it should be natural for us to boast about Jesus Christ. Now just to kind of pull the car over for a second, can you say that this is something that you do on a regular basis? I know sometimes we'll say in a passing tone, we'll say, things, oh, thank God. And, and yes, that is part of it, but I think there's more to it. What are you thanking God for? Are you boasting about the things that God has done in your life? Not because of the things, your own ability or anything like that, or things that you've acquired, but do you see God's good hand in your life? Whether it be your work, do you thank God the fact that he has placed in your life a job, an occupation where you can have daily bread, that you can support other people, that you can help, you could be a witness in this particular field? Do you thank God the fact that God has given you your job or in your family? Do you thank God that the Lord has given you your spouse? I'm not talking about those in your honeymoon period. I'm talking about the people that's been married for a while. It can be very tempting to not thank the Lord for your spouse because 
We, we, take it, we, we take them for granted. Are you thankful for the kids that the Lord has given you? I think the reason why in our culture, why Christians have lost their influence is because we're not thankful enough. We don't praise God openly. We're more, we're more ten, we tend to boast about our own abilities. We tend to boast about our own accomplishments than we do what God has done. Do you praise God in all situations and circumstances? Because if you don't speak about the Lord, it actually speaks volumes about your faith. A sojourner loves to praise God because of who he is and what he has done. Notice that who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. This idea of great mercy is a tremendous amount. As God is being generous with his mercy towards us. In fact, in the, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, when they trans, you know, in our English Bible we see the word loving kindness. But in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for the word loving kindness, they actually use this word mercy. And I think this is an appropriate word because it is God's mercy that we, that we are part of God's covenant people. We don't deserve it. But yet by God's mercy, we are born again. It says here that he has caused us to be born again. This is again the doctrine of the new birth. We were all dead in our sins at one point, but we're now alive in Christ. At one point we had zero abilities to, or even capacity to know and desire God, but now because of the work of the Holy Spirit, we have desire to live for him. We are not only brought to new life in this life, but we have eternal life. Do you understand that the moment you become a believer, that's when your eternal life begins? Yes, it's not fully recognized or fully experienced, but because of God's promise for you that you trust in him today, that you, that you turn from your sins and believe in him, that he died on the cross for you, that that's when your new life begins, and it goes all the way into eternity. We have this living hope, as Peter writes, and it speaks of this future hope that we have in heaven. Believers are alive and are being kept alive by the Lord, and we have this living hope. This word hope, I think, in the world has definitely lost his, his weight. Like when we say things like, oh, I hope you get that job, there's no certainty behind it. It's almost like a coin toss. Or I hope the Giants win this game, or the Niners win. Or I hope you get this, or I hope this person will ask you out. Whatever hope that we have in this world, it's uncertain. That's the way that the world uses the word hope. But in, the, in biblical thinking, when we speak about the hope that we have in the Lord, it's absolutely certain. It's guaranteed that we will have this. Peter is speaking of this eternal reward as if we already have it, because our hope is grounded in God's power. The believers then, and sometimes even here today, are struggling, but heaven, knowing that we'll be with him one day, gives all believers great hope. Does this living hope, does this living hope, knowing that we have heaven one day, give you encouragement this past week? Did it impact you in the way that you lived this past, this past week? Again, I think one reason why sojourners are not useful in this world, in this time, is because we are not excited about heaven. We're not joyful by the fact that we actually get to be with the Lord one day. Brothers and sisters, this promise of heaven must bring us a tremendous amount of joy. We are promised by God of heaven and earth that one day we will be with him in heaven after earth. 
So no matter how difficult the world may seem, even though the world may seem to be falling apart and there's social decay and economic troubles in life, all of those things, although they are real, it, is, it pales in comparison to how real the heavenly hope that we have. This is a living hope. Christians are most effective in the fallen world when we demonstrate that we have a hope that is not of this world. Our daily struggles must never, was not be able to put a dent in the joy that we have in Christ for all of eternity. And perhaps this is a heart check for some of us. If you're not excited for heaven, there is something wrong there. Because if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you would want to be with him. You want to be with him in heaven. And if you do not have that desire, you should really check and see in your heart, is there any idols in your life that you love more than Jesus Christ? Because if you have a true affection for Christ, you will want to be with him. And the things of this world will not excite you the way that God does. Notice that Peter writes, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Christ coming back from the grave and rising again is a testament that God's promise is true. Peter was an eyewitness to that. He saw Jesus Christ when he came back to life. And 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that if Christ did not come back from the grave, if Christ did not resurrect, if he did not have a bodily resurrection, then our faith is completely useless. We are of the most pitied because we've given our entire life to what we think is the Savior, but really he's just as dead as all the other false prophets in the past. But because Jesus has rose from the grave, we know that we have this living hope because our Savior is alive. Christ is alive and our living hope is, is present because of Christ who is alive. Our hope centers around Christ and it draws us closer to Christ. You cannot doubt one aspect of God without eventually doubting another aspect of the Lord. You cannot doubt one promise of God without eventually doubting other promises of God. Our hope orbits around the living Savior. Peter then attempts to reinforce this by explaining what this inheritance we have. Notice in verse 4, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. I think some of us know what it means to receive inheritance. And some of you are young, yet what is inheritance? You'll get it one day. But for some of us that are a little bit older, we might know what that is like. Your inheritance is something that you get from someone that loves you, enough to put you in their will, or enough to give you something. I heard a pastor describe that one time he was talking to his sons about, one day I'm going to die, and here's what you need to do to take care of your mother. And immediately the kids looked at one another, and they looked at him and said, does that mean I get to keep your guitar? And the other kids was, was, was upset. It's like, no, why do you get the guitar? I want to get the guitar. And the kids were fighting over all the pastor's things. And the pastor got upset. It's like, no, that's not the point. When we think about inheritance, inheritance is not something that we work for. It's not something that we pay for. In fact, we may even get things that we don't, we don't even want. But it is given to us. Yet, when we think about it in that in the context of Scripture, there is a greater inheritance from the Lord. Our salvation from the Lord is not something that we work for. It's not something that we can purchase. In fact, we didn't even know, we didn't even want it until God has given it to us by His grace. Notice He describes this inheritance. The first is that this inheritance is, is imperishable. It cannot be destroyed. It can't be killed. You can say that this is death-proof. 
this word imperishable in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17, it describes God himself, the, the word immortal, God, the immortal God. That's how our inheritance is. Because the reason why it's imperishable, it's immortal, is because our God is imperishable. The promises of God to his people cannot die because God himself cannot die. Peter wrote this letter, and it is described to us in church history that Peter saw his wife crucified upside down before him. Now, I do believe that outside of your faith in Christ, your relationship with the Lord, the second greatest relationship that you'll have in this life is the one with your spouse. And even then, that greatest, the second greatest relationship, it is going to perish one day. It will, be, it will perish because that's just the reality of living in a fallen world. But that is not your inheritance in Jesus Christ. The, the, the inheritance that God has given us is death-proof. Death and his cold grip cannot snatch this inheritance away from you. Notice it's also described as undefiled. It cannot be stained. It will not degrade. You categorize this as it's sin-proof. It, it, nothing can ruin it. It cannot be affected by the fall or things of sin, whether it is of natural calamities, things of the world, when we see fires going on or earthquakes, like that cannot take away your inheritance. It cannot be affected by other people. Other people cannot steal it. Other people cannot taint it in any way. It cannot be ruined because it is sin-proof. Not only is it imperishable, undefiled, but also it is time-proof. Notice it said, will not fade away. There's no expiration date. Some of you know exactly what that's like because you go to a grocery store and sometimes the expiration date, that thing lies to you. It, it seems nice at the store and the moment you put it in your car, it instantly begins to spoil. That is not what it's like with our inheritance. This word will not fade away. It's only used here in the entire New Testament. But in the other Greek literature, it's, it's described, it used, this word is used to describe in one of those Greek stories about a flower that will not wilt. That's exactly what our inheritance is like. It will not fade. Time will not make it, will not ruin it. All that we have, all the inheritance we have, Lord, is death-proof, it's sin-proof, and it's time-proof, and it's reserved for us in heaven. This what's said here. It's reserved for you in heaven. It's very specific here that we will not lose it no matter what. God has specially designed this gift for us. He's going to preserve it. He's going to reserve it for us. And God is one personally keeping it so that we will be with him in heaven one day. Are you aware that this is reserved for you and I? Only those that are part of God's family will, be, will be able to get this inheritance. All that God has promised, he will give to us. This is that it is protected by the power of God through faith. God planned it, and it will, give, and it will be with us one day. And this is why in John 14... Jesus says that I need to go away for now to prepare a place for you. In my home, there are different rooms. And, and this is the Christ's way of just giving assurance to the believers that one day we will be with him, that he has to go ahead of us and prepare a place so that we can be with him. And it says that in later in John 17, when Jesus is praying for his future disciples, a high priestly prayer, what's really cool about that passage, he's praying that, Lord, bring these saints to uh, to, back to me one day in heaven so we can have the unity just like the way that the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit were united in perfect love and fellowship. I want my disciples to have that as well. That implies even in that prayer that he really hopes for our death. Now that sounds grim, 
But you have to understand that we ha- in order to get to that paradise, we need to pass through death in this life. But that hope gives us the ability to endure so we could delight in him, so we can move forward in this life, knowing that our destination is with him one day. What makes you and I a sojourner of this world is that we have this eternal reward in mind. Do you hope for this future one day? Do you have this hope? Does it make you optimistic in life? I know the world is generally pretty, pretty pessimistic, but we know that we get heaven one day. That hope should change your outlook in all that you do. We praise him and bless him for who he is. And out of that outflow, that joy, it will make us stand out. We know as Christians, we should be joyful people. And people are eventually going to ask, why are you like this? Are you on some medication or something? Why are you so joyful all the time? And you can say with confidence, the reason why I have this joy is because of what Jesus has reserved for me in heaven. Now, for some, that might draw them to Christ. And others, that might invite animosity. And even you might be persecuted for it which gets to our third point. Yes, you as a believer have a calling by the Lord and you hope in the Lord. And that hope might, might drive people to bring great suffering. Our third point is the sojourner's suffering. The sojourner's suffering, verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Suffering for following the Savior is a reality for the sojourner. The Christian will suffer because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Notice it said this, in this you greatly rejoice. He's referring back to verse 5 about, about heaven, verse 4 and 5 about what heaven is. We have this hope, and that hope sometimes will cause those to hate us. And this should be no surprise, because that's what Jesus has promised them, that they hate you because they hated me first. It is not always going to be easy for us as sojourners, but this future reality will make us rejoice in the Lord. Notice that Peter said, even though now for a little while, if necessary. I think, and this is just, again, just pulling the car aside to think about what it means for, for about trials. I, I love this phrase here, a little while, because no matter how difficult your life may be, you could have assurance that that trial is only going to be there for. A little while. Nothing in this world will last, and that includes the trials in your life. You may be going through a tremendous amount of pain, but just have assurance and know that it's only for a little while. Notice that for a little while, if necessary, and I don't want to bore you with the Greek here, but there's five different usage of the word if, and the one here, it's more like assurance. You could translate this phrase as, it is truly necessary. In other words, the reason why you're going through this, whatever trial you're going through for the faith, it's because God's trying to grow you in the faith. It is necessary that the Lord use this trial to make you more like Christ. It gets, do you understand that God is the one who decides your trials in your life? God decides and know what is best for you so that you can be more like Christ in this world. All trials in our life chips away at us so that we can look like Jesus. It's always important, again, to remember that no matter how difficult it may seem, your trial is only just for a little while longer. And the purpose of it is to make you more like Christ. Your trials will not carry on with you into eternity. Those who said you have been distressed by various trials. This is just this idea of you're just going through a lot of pain. 
Again, God does not expect you. He doesn't give you a command about rejoicing in trials if he doesn't give you the ability to do so. It's because God knows what is best for you, that he'll put you through these trials so you can be more like Christ. This is just a paradoxical way of Christianity, right? Like Christianity said, in order to have all things of heaven, you have to sell everything of the world. In order to live, you need to die to self. And, and this is one of those things, when you're in trial, you rejoice. And we can rejoice through our trial. God will bring you in and out of a trial because he believes it and knows that it is best for you in order for you to look more like Jesus Christ. We learned this last week when, when Theo talked about, in James 1, various trials. It's the same word here. It's multifaceted, it's, it's multiple, it's, it's a manifold, it's multiple, it's myriads and myriads of trials. It's, it's just different facets of a trial. From the smallest to the biggest, all trials in your life are designed to make you look more like Jesus Christ. And this explains it, verse 7, so that the proof of your faith uh, being more precious than gold, which is imperishable, even even though tested by fire. He explains the purpose here. The pain that you go through is to stretch your faith. God brings trials in your life so that it can, you can prove, so to prove your faith. And we know sometimes, even in our prayer, I know behind this pulpit I've prayed this, I know all the other pastors and elders have prayed this. I'm sure even in your own private time you prayed, Lord, help me be more like you. And sometimes the way that the Lord does that is through trials. The Lord can use different trials in your life to answer that prayer. Trials will deepen your resolve for Jesus Christ. Peter uses this illustration to show this refining process to make us more like Christ. And last week, Theo explained it, what that was. like The refining process is this melting and going over and over again. It, it, it keeps going and going until all of the, all of the impurities are burned off or, or, or scooped away. It's a, it's a very repetitive process. And one of the things that people will do at the time is that they will keep burning and melting and, then, and getting all the, all the scraps and all the impurities away to the point that well, they'll know if it's done when they look at this gold and they can see their own reflection in the gold. And that's the same way for us as trials. When the Lord is refining us, eventually we will reflect our refiner. We will look more like Jesus because of the refiner's fire. Notice at the end of verse 7, it said, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What Peter's trying to say is that God is going to work in your life and you're going to be honoring to the Lord when he returns. The end result in the Lord working in your faith is that you will be like Christ when he sees you. And that's what we hope for one day. You and I, one day, when we enter into heaven, we long for that phrase, well done, my faithful servant. This will come one day, but until then, God will continue to use different trials in our life to refine us to look more like Jesus Christ. As the world looks more and more strange and hostile towards Christianity, the more frustrated that they will be because they will see that no matter what they throw at us, we will find this joy. In fact, there is a irony in to all of this because the reason why they hate us is because when we how we live our lives convict them of their sin and they think by silencing us and by making us go through different various sufferings that it will just remove us altogether that will somehow clear their conscience 
not realizing that the more they put us through the ringer, the more they cause us to suffer, the more we'll look like Christ and the more convicted they will be. And this is our hope. And we know and we hope that if this is part of God's plan, that we suffer in his name so that others can come to saving faith, then praise the Lord. This is what Stephen was going through in the book of Acts. Before he was stoned to death by the Pharisees, he, he prayed, Lord, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And you recall right after that, the apostle Paul came to saving faith. And if the Lord was to use you to die so that, so that the baton can be passed to another person, then so be it, because of the hope that we have. But how do we, how do we continue on with this mindset that the Lord may kill us so that other people can come to saving faith we need to remember the sojourner's reward. Our last point this morning is the sojourner's reward. For if you understand your calling by the Lord, that the Lord called you, he had this foreknowledge that before the foundation of the world, he called to be part of his family. Then he gave us this hope about this insurance that we have that leads to suffering. And that suffering, in order to endure that suffering, we need to remember the reward that we have. Our fourth point, our last point, is the sojourner's reward. Verse 8, it said, And though you have not seen him, you love him. None of us here today have seen Jesus Christ. If there's people in this day and age that claim that they've seen Jesus Christ, they're either mistaken or they're lying. They're self-deceived. Peter's original audience are just like us in that we've never seen the face of Jesus Christ. Even though we have not seen him with our eyes, we still love him. And just because we and even the original audience, have, not, have never seen Jesus Christ, that does not make his love for us and our love for him any less real. I think last week there was a concert in Golden Gate Park. I think it's called Homeless Land, whatever that concert is. Whenever you go to any concert, it's, 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 you guys are chuckling, it's called Homeless Land, right? Out, outside Land, outside Land, sorry. <laughs> it's filled with homeless people, so that's why I'm confused. But in any concert, what usually happens the artist will go up there and eventually he'll say something like this, or he or she, or it, pro, whatever. It'll say, they'll say, I love you, San Francisco. And what, what's the natural response from the audience? They'll say, I love you back, Taylor Swift, or whatever artist. They'll say they love them back. But you understand when the artist is saying that they love you, they don't really love you. I mean, they love your wallet. That's why they're saying thank you. You paid for their, you know, their, their tour bus and all of that. You, get, you, you contribute to their lifestyle. But they don't love you in the sense that they know who you are. They don't know you by name. They're not providing for you. They know nothing of you other than the fact that you're just the person sitting in row 7D. And when, and when an audience, when they say they love back the artists, what are they actually saying? They're saying that they love the artists for what they have done. How much more is it with Scripture? This, when, God, when the Scripture tells us that God loves us, He truly does love us. He loves us because he knows us who we are. He knows the numbers on our head. He, he provides for our needs. But most importantly, he died for our sins. There is a true love from the Lord for us. And it was because of what we read in Scripture about him, we love him back. No amount of musicians' verses can compare to the 31,102 verses that's in Scripture. Because all of those scriptures, all 31,102 verses, tells us and testifies to us of the glories of God. It testifies of God's loving kindness towards our humanity. It testifies of faithfulness toward fallen man. We get God's word that teaches us about Christ and his love for us. Our love 
for Jesus has nothing to do with what we can see with our physical eyes, but has everything to do with our spiritual sight that's revealed in God's word. In fact, Peter himself, in 2 Peter, he's a guy that saw Jesus transfigured before him. And in 2 Peter, he talks about how there was something even greater than his, his eyewitness account. Something that's greater than just being there in the mountains. He said in 2 Peter chapter 1, So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. But know this First of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. What we have that's better than actually seeing Christ in the earth is that we have God's revealed word. We love God because Scripture tells us of his love towards us. And this means that if you do not have this love for God, it is possible that you do not understand the gospel. You don't understand God's love for you. Because the natural outflow of understanding what God's word has to say is that we will devote our life to him. We will love him more because of it. I wonder if you've ever asked that question, what does it even mean to love God? What does it mean to worship God? I think love and worship are synonymous. And I think the answer to that is a simple math equation. That love for God is devotion plus obedience. Devotion plus obedience equals love for God or worship for God. Devotion is just you're fixated on one object. And obedience is you'll, you'll listen to what the object tells you. We're committed to the Lord through our obedience to his word. And this is why early on in chapter 1 verse 2 of 1 Peter it says that the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ You love this God because of what God has done for you, and you listen to his commandment, and his commandments are not a burden to you. I think all of us, if you got a new job, you know what it's like the first day of work, you're just so happy and joyful. If the boss calls you into their office and they ask you to go get coffee for them, you'll do it right away, boss. But after the 10,000th time, you'll be frustrated. Like, why can't you get your own coffee? Well, that's what the interns are for. You get frustrated. Or maybe for some of you, you understand when you guys were married, the first honeymoon period, you'll do whatever. The, your, your spouse will tell you to clean up, and you'll clean up. But after the 10,000th time, what happened? Why do I need to clean up? Why does this need to be cleaned? In those moments where we're grumbling, where we feel like those commands are a burden to us, it's because we failed in loving them. That love diminishes a little bit. So in those moments, our love diminish. Love makes it easy for us to serve. And if you have a genuine love for the Lord, the God that you have not seen, you will still do all those things because it's not a burden for you. Now again, the world will not understand why you love this invisible Savior. Why do you live the way that you do? Why do you do all that you do? It's because you love the Lord. The love of God is what controls us. Even though we do not see him, we still believe in him. Our relationship in Jesus Christ is not based on trust. It's not based on what, what we see with our eyes, but what we read and hear about the Lord in Scripture. Jesus made some huge claims in the Bible. When we read the New Testament in the Gospels, he made some huge claims. He claims himself to be the Alpha and Omega in the book of Revelation, but in the Gospel he talks about how he's a way and the truth and life, and no one can get to the Father but through him. He said, before Abraham was, I am. 
He said that I am the vine, you are the branches, you could do nothing without me. He described himself as God, as the Son of God. These are huge claims. And it seems foolish to the world. We are essentially believing what the Lord has written through his word. And it seems like a leap of faith to trust in God's word. But I will submit to you, it's actually not really a leap, but more like a step of faith. Because everything comes down to even what Peter wrote in 2 Peter about the scriptures. That no prophecy was ever made by any act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And we know 2 Timothy 3.16 and Hebrews 4.12 says the same thing, that God's word is God's word. He gave it to us, and we know that God is the author of all of Scripture. So when we trust in God's word, in the pages that we have, we know that it is directly from the Lord. Now, there will be skeptics that will say things like, well, we need more data, we need more information. And this decision will always come down to this one question, is that do you believe in the source material? If you ever have a debate with an atheist, for example, and they tell you that I have all of these evidence and proof that God is not real, and you ask them what is their source, they might send you to like an internet link, and you look at the, it's probably some nerdy blogger, you know, it's like, and that's their authority. This person did all the research for me, and I'm trusting in this person. And when you, come to, when you ask them, like, who is this person? And then they'll say, oh, this person is, has all this, P, this doctorate and PhD and all of these different things. That's why I need to trust him. It's like, you can just keep probing, ask them, what is this person? And they'll just say, oh, this person's from here. He had this education, this and that. He did all the research. And if you keep asking, eventually they'll have to say that this author is only human. So when they say things like, oh, the Bible was written by man, well, so is your guy. The guy that you believe is also human. So what makes us different. It's not even an act of faith, because they have faith in these writers just as much as we have faith in our writers of Scripture. The question comes down to, what is the source? Because when you look at the source of Scripture, it's God himself. It's not some human being. Yes, God used humans to write his word, but it is, it is God himself. He is the author of Scripture. All of the ghost writers might be like David and Moses and all the apostles, but the source is God himself. The problem, again, is not an act of faith, but the source material on who we place our faith in. So do you believe in God's word? The Bible makes a lot of claims that we have to believe that it is from God. I know in our moral, in our immoral society, any morality that we have will seem very foreign to them. And that's how, we're, how we represent God faithfully. As a soldier in this world, our morality is different because of God's command to us. He tells us what to do and we obey him because he is the source of all truth. And, that should, and the result of obeying him is that we have joy. Look at the end of verse 8 to verse 9. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. This shows that the natural outflow of the faith is joy. We have this joy because of the Lord. The, gener- the Christian demeanor, generally speaking, is filled with joy because of God's promise. If you look forward to eternal life, it will impact your temporal life now. One way that we can be faithful sojourners is that we are filled with joy no matter what's going on around us. Whenever you read about how the world seems to be falling apart, understand that this is not our home. We have another home that waits. The question we ask ourselves is, do you want to go home? How bad is it 
do you really want to get out of this world to be with our Lord? And the Lord will call us. He'll know when it's time to go home. But until then, we need to be faithful to him. If you want to be used by God in front of a watching world, you need to be a joyful person. Bitter Christians leave a sour taste in non-believers' mouth. Bitter Christians leave a sour taste in the mouth of unbelievers. And sad Christians will have very little impact in this world. You and I need to focus on what God is, working, what is God doing in our life now and what he's going to do for us in the future. And that should bring a tremendous amount of joy, a genuine joy that shows yourself, uh, shows a genuine faith in the Lord because you worship the real true God and the true God has inheritance waiting for you. Next year, SFBC will be 60 years old. And throughout this whole preaching project, I was able to talk to some of the founders of this church, some of the people that were there since the very beginning. And it brings me so much joy and encouragement just hearing about what they cherished the most at that time. And it's the gospel. They loved Jesus then, and they're hoping and holding on to the hope that they have. And I hope, if, if, if the Lord doesn't return, that 60 years from now, that this church will continue to be a beacon of light in this world as we continue to remember the hope that God has for us, that he called us before the foundation to represent him here in this world. Yes, they might invite sufferings and persecution, but because of the hope that we have in him, we will be rewarded with heaven. And again, heaven is not strictly about the eternal rewards that we get. Yes, the Bible promises those things like a crown, and, and, and it's not even about just the physical changes. I know some of you wish that you're taller or shorter or have this and that. Those things, yes, they're great and they're fine, but the greatest reward that we will have is that we will see our Savior, this God that we have not seen, that we love. We'll be able to see him face to face. And we will, yes, we're going to be an alien here, but one day, we will finally be home. And this opening charge by God should cause us to live faithful and, and to, the, to be faithful strangers in a very hostile and strange world. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, help us look different, not for sake of being different, but we're different because of our devotion and faithfulness to you. Lord, help us be aware of our, just our own sin that can cause us to lose our gospel impact here. Lord, may we put those things off and put on Christ's likeness. Lord, we, I ask for those who do not know you, who do not have this excitement for heaven, who do not desire to be with you, that you will use this message to convict them of their sin. May you cause them to see how they are, that um, they're currently not living in a way that you like, and most importantly, they have no faith in you. And I hope that in our church like this, that there are no false Christians. And what a terrible thing to live a life here, to claim to be a Christian, only to, for you to say, depart from me, for I never knew you. Lord, cause us all to be a joyful people, so that we can draw uh, others to you, because of how great you are. Thank you for this time. In your son's name I pray. Amen.